If you lived in America a little over 100 years ago, and you looked up in the sky and saw a bird, chances are pretty good it would have been a passenger pigeon. There were literally billions of them in North America, making them the most populous bird we had. But they were a cheap source of meat, so they were slaughtered by hunters. In 1914, they went the way of the dodo and were officially extinct, gone forever. Because of instances like this, conservation programs were set up in America to try and prevent any more of our animals from going extinct. Over the past decade, those programs have been losing money, which puts the protection of thousands of species at risk. Why? Because there aren't enough hunters. Welcome to the Reconnecting Roots podcast, where we dive deep into unique stories and aspects of American history and culture that are often overlooked. I'm your host, Ryan Estabrooks. I'm Gabe McCauley, host of the TV series Reconnecting Roots, which is currently airing on a PBS station near you or available to watch on reconnectingroots.com. I'll be your guide throughout our story today. And I'll be connecting with people all across America. And today, we're looking at the relationship between conservation of the American outdoors and how it's supported by hunting. Host of the Netflix series Meat Eater, Stephen Ranella, explains how one of this country's most iconic animals came dangerously close to extinction and how hunters brought them back. Then the industrial slaughter that came in in the 1860s and 1870s was like nothing we'd ever seen. We'll also hear from Tyler Sharp from Modern Huntsman, who's able to shed light on how future conservation efforts might be funded. The hunting industry has to realize that if they don't open the gate and allow people in who are from different backgrounds and cultures and socioeconomic situations, that hunting's not gonna survive. Ryan Callahan, who's also from the Netflix series Meat Eater, tells us why hunting helps people appreciate the outdoors. I feel if folks had this type of experience, they'd fight very, very hard to preserve what else is out here. Nationally, 60% of funding for wildlife groups comes from hunting-related fees, which is a problem because there have been fewer hunters buying licenses and equipment in recent years. Take a state like Pennsylvania, for example. The number of licensed hunters in that state has dropped by over 75,000 in the past decade. That adds up to about a $1.5 million shortage in license fees. And that's before you even start thinking about money lost from taxes earned through sales of hunting equipment. And that's just one state. Agencies have long depended on these funds to protect our national wildlife. If the structure we have in place isn't working anymore, how can we make sure the great American outdoors is in tip-top shape for future generations? Whenever we were doing this TV episode, and this whole kind of subject came up about the fact that so much of our conservation efforts are funded by hunters. Like, was that something that, that you were aware of or that you had heard of before we did this episode? I certainly wasn't aware to the extent at which, you know, hunting and fishing licenses make up 
the funds for conservation. I, I knew that it was a part of it, and I knew it went toward it, but I didn't realize how significant a portion it is. And it's a real interesting thing to think about because if you're sort of pro-nature, pro-conservation, pro-preservation, but you're not necessarily on board with hunting, there's a little bit of a conflict there. A lot of people have these kind of stereotypes, these stereotypical images of hunters in their head. They often think of like trophy hunters and, and people like that, right? And so for them to think, wait a second, these people are just trying to go out there and kill these animals and, and show them off and whatnot. Why would they care? Or how would they even be involved with protecting those animals? And it, it seemed like while doing research and, and speaking to some of our guests, that it, it, it's like a lot of those people really care about these animals. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of a little bit of, of, of the same when it comes to farms, right? There are some farmers and, and, and people like that who, let's say like rave, uh, raise, <laughs> not rave. Uh, I mean, farmers might be raving here and there. When farmers raise livestock, like they see this animal get born and and live its whole life there at at their house, basically, right. right? And so then, whenever it comes time for them to become beef or pork or whatever, there is a, an attachment there. Oh yeah, my, my my landlord's that way. My aunt and uncle are that way. I know a lot of farmers that will not eat the animals that they raise. They'll eat beef and chicken, just not their own. Um, they do become very attached to these animals and have an appreciation for them. Uh, far more than the the average person. When you're passionate about something, you tend to care about it and you tend to put your your dollars where your passion is. Constructed to perfection and responsibly built for the long haul, Taylor Stitch has taken over 10 years of feedback and is doubling down on their commitment to building the best possible clothing while pledging to limit their environmental impact. From fiber to fabric to factory to end functionality, Taylor Stitch has grown from a need for products without limitations that could handle chopping wood, surf sessions, snagging trout, or simply heading to the office. On top of making the world's best apparel, they're asking questions about how they can protect wild forever. And as a Reconnecting Roots listener, use the code Reconnecting Roots. That's Reconnecting Roots, all one word, for 25% off all products, one use per customer. That offer is valid through July 2021. Taylor Stitch makes some outstanding clothing. How do I know? Because I wear it. I have some. And without a doubt, every time I'm sporting a jacket, a shirt, I get compliments. It looks good on me, so I know it'll look great on you. Taylor Stitch. I wake up every morning to two things. One, my lovely bride, and two, a cup of Mule Town coffee. It's just good, for goodness sake. Steep, sip, enjoy. Making good coffee has never been easier than with Mule Town coffee's new steeped packs. And whether you're rushing to get kids out the door, traveling abroad, or out hiking the trails, Mule Town steep packs are easy to carry, easy to brew, and ready wherever you are. Just add hot water. 
Visit MuleTownCoffee.com to order steep packs today. And as always, have a good one from everyone at MuleTown Coffee. Now through July 31st, 2021, customers will get 20% off steep packs when they use coupon code STEEPITUP. S-T-E-E-P-I-T-U-P. All one word, steep it up. And if you're wondering out there, is it really that easy? Can I really just go to a website, say I want coffee, and it'll be delivered to my door just whenever I run out? Yeah, it is. I know because I've done it. Mealtown Coffee. Good for goodness sake. Reconnecting Roots has some new friends we can't seem to shake. I mean, you know those guys. They crash on your couch, drink all your booze, and clutter the sink with leftover bowls of ramen. Earl and Craig host a PBS show called The Good Road with a companion podcast called Philanthropology. That's right, Philanthropology. They travel a ton around the world and seek out cool people who are change makers and tell their stories. Check them out at thegoodroad.tv where you can jump to their podcast and info about the show. But I will warn you, if you connect with them, they will ask if they can crash on your couch. They've done it to me. Earl and Craig really have become good friends of ours. They're such fun people with great hearts, and their TV show, The Good Road, and Philanthropology, the podcast, are worth checking out. Their show's about people doing good. We could all stand to see and hear about more of that. The Good Road with Craig and Earl. Check them out. So when exactly did conservation become so dependent on hunters? To answer that, we'll have to go back to when settlers were still getting used to this fancy new place we now call America. Those settlers were coming from countries where hunting was seen more as a sport, typically only for snooty, high-class elites. They would have competitions to see who could shoot the most animals in a given time frame, tallying up points based on how big or small the animals were. See. This is what happens when you don't have video games to use your trigger finger on. When they immigrated to America, it was a new frontier for them with lots of unexplored land. As they started hunting for food, many got the impression that there were endless amounts of animals to be enjoyed. I mean, if you kill an animal and then one magically appears the next time you go out in the woods, that's the only logical conclusion, right? As the country grew, the fur trading business became a big industry, and high demand for things like pelts and hides meant animals were being killed at an increasing rate. Some animals, like the passenger pigeon we mentioned earlier, were completely wiped out. Other species we know and love today came pretty close to extinction, which forced people to take a step back and look at what was happening to our natural resources. One of those species nearly killed off is the American buffalo. Those scattered smaller populations were largely wiped out by, by what we would now call like pot hunters. Like people just, you establish a settlement and everyone's living off wild meat and there's a finite resource and they're good at killing it. That's Stephen Ranella, acclaimed author and host of the Netflix series Meat Eater. I went up to Montana and hung out with Stephen at the National Bison Range where I got to see these iconic animals up close. And Stephen is not only a hunting expert, but he's also literally written a book about the history of the American buffalo. But then the industrial slaughter that came in in the 1860s and 1870s was like nothing we'd ever seen. 
Stephen told me about how railroads had reached all over the country at that point. Providing an easy way to ship huge amounts of meat and other goods to markets with hungry customers. But while this was happening, they weren't able to really see the damage they were doing. There was a disconnect, especially with those who lived far away from hunting areas. They were just laying down money and meat would show up on their doorstep. No one could understand the finiteness of the resource. Generally, like people couldn't comprehend it. They couldn't see what they were doing. They commented on how wasteful it was and people commented on how destructive it was, but the overall grand picture was no one really understood what they had done until it was too late. And then people in a popular sense knew that like, wow, yeah. we really blew this. But then these, these same hunters, or at least a few of them, became part of the solution. Yeah. Like, what did that look like? How do we re regain the amount that we have today? I think if, if, let's say we take a key figure like Theodore Roosevelt, who's like a very key figure in preservation of the animal. Yeah. Okay. Here's a person who he's he's a city slicker, this like asthmatic, sickly city slicker child who is always very sort of embarrassed about his his frailty and where he was from. Hmm. And he wanted to have this, this, this swashbuckling Western lifestyle. And he discovered big game hunting. And his discovery of big game hunting fostered in him this like deep concern for wildlife that then he's, he preserved about 50,000 acres for every day he was in office when he was in president. Wow. So it, it created in him an understanding and admiration and love for wildlife. And he played a part in the restoration and preservation. These hunters provided a blueprint for a path forward on how to make sure animal populations weren't in danger of going extinct, and yet still give people the freedom to hunt. Their idea was that if you could protect the land itself, you would protect the animals that lived on it. When land is preserved by the government, they can control access to it and better monitor the animal populations and the number of hunters who hunt on it. President Roosevelt had this exact mindset and by the time he left office, his administration had preserved 230 million acres. He created the U.S. Forest Service, which opened 150 national forests. During his presidency, hunting licenses became a widespread practice, with those fees becoming sources of revenue for the country. Then, in 1937, a landmark law passed that established a system tying all hunting-related fees and taxes to conservation programs a system we're still using today. Regulation. Regulated hunting. Yeah. I assume that costs dollars. Like, how does that, who's, who's providing these funds to, to make these regulations possible? If you were to look historically, no user group has even approached the hunting and angling community in terms of conservation dollars spent on creating habitat and fueling our refuge system and fueling wildlife restoration. So. In a, way we, in a way, it was our responsibility to do it culturally, right? Like, as a culture, hunters, we decimated American wildlife by the early 1900s. Wow. It was rebuilt by hunters. And I'm not saying, like, you, you know, hooray for us, we're so great. We caused the problem. And then, as a group, created mechanisms to rectify the situation. And we built funding structures around it. So when you buy guns, ammunition, boat gas, fishing equipment, archery equipment, there's a built-in tax on that stuff, 13 to 14% excise tax, which goes to the Wildlife Restoration Act, 
Thanks to the system that hunters help put in place, more than $3 billion is raised every year from hunting and fishing-related activities that go towards funding our conservation agencies. Preserving our wildlife is no easy task. It takes almost 50,000 employees and 190,000 volunteers to look after 464 million acres of land and 167 million acres of lakes and other types of wetlands. The stakes are high because literally tens of thousands of species are being cared for by these agencies. If these programs are threatened in any way, American animals and the places they live in tend to pay the price. And if so much of our conservation efforts are funded by hunting-related sales and licenses, do we currently have enough hunters to fund everything we need at the moment? We hear the statistic that hunt registered hunting numbers are declining, which for the most part seems to be true. That's Tyler Sharp, CEO of The Modern Huntsman, a company that produces high-end magazines, books, and films that celebrate the beauty of nature and the hunters that connect with it. He grew up in Texas as a kid who loved the outdoors, but didn't get into hunting until after graduating college. He got a job filming for six months in Tanzania, Africa, working with a safari company. And he was living completely off the grid there. And so the meat he ate came from animals they hunted or caught. And this sparked his interest in hunting. And since then, he's been to over 30 countries filming or producing outdoors-related media. And he's right about the number of registered hunters going down. A survey from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says that today, only 5% of the population over the age of 16 go out and hunt. That's half the number of what it was 50 years ago. And many experts expect this number to go down in the near future because of one reason, age. Almost a third of all hunters in the U.S. are baby boomers. And it's been noted that the average hunter stops going out into the field at around age 65. Considering the youngest baby boomers will all reach that age in 10 years, there's a lot of worry about that segment hitting a wall and suddenly dropping out of that funding pool. But even though less people may be getting hunting licenses, that doesn't mean people are less interested in hunting overall. I would say that the interest in hunting is growing, especially with the rise of the whole field to table thing and a lot of chefs you know, wanting to cook wild game. You know, I think that where the disconnect lies is that for for someone who maybe lives in Manhattan or Chicago or San Francisco or Los Angeles that is interested in hunting, has never done it, doesn't have a mentor, doesn't have a friend, there's not a great access point to start doing it. I could see how it could be intimidating to someone who doesn't have the confidence or the knowledge to just step right in. People have also become much more interested in other outdoor-related activities, like hiking, uh, camping, nature photography, bird watching, which means more Americans are visiting and utilizing our state parks and their resources. Keeping those parks in good shape costs money. If the hunters aren't paying for it, who's going to? I think what it comes down to is very few people will pay for something that they have no connection to. A, a kid who lives in Manhattan and has never been to Yellowstone is likely not going to have the desire to support that system, right? Or to donate money or, or whatever it is because they just have no context there. 
If people aren't willingly donating their money to support America's parks, one option would be adding a built-in tax to items related to the outdoors, so that it's not only hunting items that are contributing dollars. It's what some people are referring to as a backpack tax. The, the backpack tax that would be similar to the Pittman-Robertson Act, where the purchase of recreational equipment, right? Camping supplies, rock climbing supplies, um, you know, things like that. The way that the, the hunting equipment is taxed, basically uh, the purchase of that equipment would go into the same pool of money. And that money would, you know, I, more than double, most likely, if they did something like that, because there's so many people who go camping and hiking. Uh, and there's a lot of crossover there. Tyler says there's been pushback on multiple sides when it comes to a proposed backpack tax. Hikers and campers don't feel like they should pay the tax because they say they're not removing anything from the environment in the same way hunters are. Although Tyler has a different perspective on that. The hikers, they, they actually have a, a larger impact on the well-being of the animals because on weekends, there are so many people hiking in the mountains that it's actually affected the patterns of the wildlife with the foot traffic and the resource consumption and maybe people leaving their trash or their dog poop bags or whatever still has an impact. At the same time, some hunters are worried that if more people contribute to these funds, they'll have less of a say in how they're able to hunt. They're concerned about people who might be anti-hunting or don't completely understand the hunting world having more power when it comes to making rules hunters then have to follow. Of course, another way to get more funding is to convince more people to go hunting. So what exactly are the challenges preventing more Americans from getting licenses and going out into the woods? The hunting industry has to realize that if they don't open the gate and allow people in who are from different backgrounds and cultures and socioeconomic situations, that hunting's not going to survive. And it can't be that everybody has to be dressed the same way and wear the same hat and come from the same background, that things need to change. And, and some of that involves different political beliefs or um, lifestyle choices or whatever it is. But even as someone who's worked in the industry for almost 15 years and lives in Texas, there's times where, where I can go into a local hunting store and not feel welcome. But there are new programs out there that are finding ways to reach out to younger generations, like the Field to Fork program in Athens, Georgia, which you got to experience, Gabe. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Their whole focus is figuring out creative ways to get non-hunters interested in hunting, like going to farmer's markets and chatting with people who are interested in clean and locally sourced meat. I thought if there's such a thing as hipster hunters, I want to be one of them. And so I went to Georgia to check out the Field to Fork program, where I got to meet several of the people enrolled there and chat about hunting. I think growing up uh, a woman in the suburbs, there's a lot of things that don't feel accessible to you, but seem really interesting, and hunting was one of them. Sarah Thurman was one of those people who didn't know what the first step was for someone interested in hunting. She didn't have any family members who hunted who could show her what equipment to get, what to wear, and how to do it all in a safe way. So when she stumbled across the Field to Fork program, she found mentors who could show her the ropes. It made her realize just how much she wanted to try it out, and she gave it a shot. 
One thing she pointed out that seems to be a common theme for the newer hunters is wanting to step away from the controversial world of commercial meat farming. Factory farmed beef and the antibiotics, you know, fed to animals in feedlots feels wrong. And it also feels like there's not much of a way out. And so this is a really, I think, honorable way to step outside of that system without trying to simultaneously like dismantle a system you really don't have that much control over. So you got to spend some time checking out the Field to Fork program and even went on a little bit of a hunt with them. So walk me through what that was like. So I went one evening where they were planning a hunt and you get started um, before the sun goes down by about an hour or two, right? I don't know if it was around four or five. We start suiting up. We get in camo. They have stuff there. If you don't have all the proper proper clothing or the right safety gear, what about the like the the guns and crossbows and bow and arrows and things like that? Do they have that too? They do, and it's funny that you say guns because they actually only use crossbows or oh, uh, okay. archery. Um, I wouldn't say only, but I think the way they do the mentorship program is they specifically use crossbows. And it makes a lot of sense because it's not a big learning curve. They're pretty easy to to figure out how to use and, and they're pretty accurate. I got to try one out while I was there. You know, I shot it. I actually hit my, my, my first arrow, you know, it was a little low and to the right. I shot my second arrow and I hit my first arrow. So nice. just to show you sort of how accurate and easy it was, because I'm not a pro marksman by any means, but like, mm-hmm. and I was shooting for the bullseye. So I missed the bullseye both times. Uh, but whatever, for whatever reason, I was shooting a little bit to the right and, and low, but I, I hit the same place consistently just to show you sort of how accurate the machine is. Right. Yeah. And they don't have a lot of kickback. They're not noisy. So it's a really gentle way to get introduced to hunting without like going out with a huge, you know, with a big 30-30 rifle or something that's going to be really noisy, have a lot of kick. So it's real friendly for someone maybe who's smaller in stature, who might be thrown off by the, the loud noise or whatever. But they're very effective too. They're very efficient at effectively killing the animal without just, you know, lightly maiming it and it's suffering. <laughs> like if you're right. halfway accurate, you can efficiently kill the animal. And so uh, I got a mentor. I got paired up with a mentor and I went out hunting with him. And he's he was actually from Haiti. And he had met these folks at the farmer's market, I believe. And the reason he did the program is because he was so used to eating fresh food in Haiti, fresh meat and fresh fruit and vegetables that he was disappointed by the supermarkets in, <laughs> in the U S and he was like, man, I just, <laughs> I want some fresh meat. And so that evening we went out, um, until the sun went down basically. And at that point you okay. can't hunt anymore, but we, we went up for a few hours in a deer stand. Uh, we saw a few deer, but unfortunately the only one that really got close enough to shoot was pretty small. And, uh, the guy I was with was felt like he wanted to let that deer grow to be a little bit bigger and would have an opportunity to maybe hunt that one later or something like that. So didn't get any deer that evening, but it was pretty cool experience just to go out in the woods and just to sit, just to observe. And then afterwards y'all had like a dinner or something like that, right? Yeah. And then afterwards they grilled out a bunch of deer that I'm sure was killed and harvested from a previous hunt and had a big feast and, another way just to sort of 
team build and have camaraderie with all the individuals there that are trying to hunt. And I mean, it was, it was great because the people were all over the place and there were several women there, several females that were wanting to get into hunting. So it wasn't just all these men and it wasn't, um, it wasn't just white dudes. It was, you know, it was diverse. Um, nice. and it, and it was people there for all different reasons of wanting to learn how to hunt or to be hunting and, and different experience levels as well. And I just think if you're going to be that connected to your food source where you kill or slaughter or harvest an animal, whether, whether as a farmer or someone who's raising livestock or even as a hunter, even more specifically, when you're that close to the process and you, you take a life, you become so connected with that, that animal and that meat that you harvest from that animal, it's much more difficult to only eat half of what's on your plate and throw the rest in the trash. <laughs> you just aren't going to do that. And this is the exact thing that Ryan Callahan and I talked about while eating a delicious turkey that we had just harvested from my first hunt down here in Tennessee. I feel if folks had this type of experience, they'd fight very, very hard to preserve what else is out here, how this food came to be. It really just comes down to appreciation, right? That's one of the things that I value the most about hunting, and, and certainly what I feel like hunting has given me was this awareness and appreciation for what goes on out here. It's like this very, I'm gonna use this very overused word, but this very primal connection where, you know, you go out, you gather food that came directly from the land. There is no greater appreciation right. for that food. Right. And in turn, you become very appreciative and very protective of the spot where that food came from. No one is quite sure yet how this is going to be resolved. Bills proposing different types of backpack taxes, like Tyler mentioned, have failed to get passed. So finding a middle ground that makes everyone happy is going to take a lot more work. But there's no denying that the preservation of our parks and wildlife is in danger if something doesn't change. And safeguarding our natural habitat is something that Americans on all sides of the political spectrum mostly agree on, with 74% of the nation saying we should do whatever it takes to protect the environment, according to a Pew Research Center survey. How often do the majority of us agree on something in this day and age? We can't do a lunch order at the office without getting into a heated debate over sandwich shops. And really, we all know the best sandwich place is whichever one will sponsor this podcast. So the irony is, hunters need a place to hunt, Americans want to spend more time outdoors, and the best current way to keep that going is for people to do more hunting. On top of that, it's actually cheaper to have hunters regulate the population of several animals than when state wildlife agencies have to do it. Essentially, when the hunting population decreases, wildlife groups have to do more work with fewer resources which makes it harder to protect our environment. If we want to give future generations the ability to hunt, hike, and camp, we have to do everything we can to not repeat the mistakes of the past.
We want to thank all of our friends who are on the show today. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat about hunting and conservation. I want to thank Stephen Ranella for hanging out with me in Montana and sharing your wisdom and insight about the American buffalo. You can watch his show, Meat Eater, on Netflix and find his podcast, recipes, and a whole lot more at meateater.com. And you can also find Ryan Callahan there at Meat Eater. Thanks, Ryan, for talking to me about conservation and for guiding me on my first turkey hunt and for cooking that thing up and sharing a delicious meal with me. Thanks to Tyler Sharp from Modern Huntsman for diving into all things outdoors with us. You can check out their books and videos at modernhuntsman.com. And let me just say, if you haven't seen it before, their books are beautiful. We have every issue right now sitting on our coffee table at our office. Definitely worth checking out. And a huge thanks to Hank Forrester and everyone at the Field to Fork program from the Quality Deer Management Association for letting us tag along and see how the next generation of hunters are getting involved. You can keep up with their work at facebook.com slash the QDMA. We'll include links in the show notes to all of these places for easy access. You can watch the Reconnecting Roots TV series on your local public television station on the PBS app, or stream it on our website. Feel free to rate us or leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so we can keep the conversation going. You can also listen to the Reconnecting Roots album, where Fire Kid and Manny McCauley reimagine iconic songs with a modern twist, each song related to a topic on the show. Check it out on Spotify, Apple Music, and other popular streaming services. And now, as a way to celebrate the beauty of the outdoors, Here's their performance of Home on the Range. Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope play. Where seldom is heard a discouraging word And the skies are not cloudy all day From this part of the West It's not likely he'll ever return To the banks of Red River Where seldom, if ever His flickering campfire still burns Home, home on the Play 
Where seldom is heard a discouraging word And the skies are not cloudy all day Reconnecting Roots podcast is made possible by the following wonderful people. Our producer, Joel McAfee. Writer, researcher, and my co-host, Ryan Estabrooks. Research for this episode also provided by Larissa Goodlad and Joel McAfee. Consulting by Dave Boyd. Music supervisor and editor, Mandy McCauley. Score, George Polly and Paul Kinsing. Mixed by George Polly. And our executive producers, Frank and Karen Smith. And our amazing theme song, America the Beautiful Reimagined as We're Home by Fire Kid and Mandy McCauley. Reconnecting Roots podcast is a Lil Dragon and Story Scout Studios production.